Father, we just thank you so much for all the generous people in this place, generous with time and generous with their hearts and the sacrifice that they make for coming each week. I just ask that you bless each and every one here in a special way today and that your presence just be with us and just thank you for this opportunity to share your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So welcome again. I'm excited. I uh, started a series last week on the kingdom of God and I've been um, feeling to share this uh, series for quite a while. So it's kind of nice finally getting to it and, you know, uh, the timing and everything. Uh, just wh- just so you know, I'm fighting a, a cold. So I'm trying, if, if I sound kind of, I don't know, whatever, I, that's why. But I'm going to try my best to get through this and, and uh, excited to what, to, uh, what I'm sharing today. So how many of you were here last week? Oh, great, most of us. How many weren't here? Okay, so what I'm going to do the first part is sort of uh, give a little bit of a review um, of last week, just because there was quite a bit last week, but so for those of us who were here, uh, just so we are refreshed and reminded, because what I'm going on to talk about today, what I talked about last week's essential, but also for the sake of those of you who weren't here last week, um, I also want to hit a couple things from a different angle a little bit and, um, because of the importance of it. And so what I started talking about last week is I made the point that understanding the kingdom of God is absolutely crucial for understanding the teaching and ministry of Jesus. Now, we talked about how the synoptic gospels, all three of them, when they summarize the entirety of Jesus' teaching and his ministry, do so in terms of the kingdom of God. We also talked about how when Jesus instructed his disciples, how he went out and said, the only thing he told them to do, think the kingdom of God is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, right? The only thing they're supposed to say is the kingdom of God is at hand. And so from all of this, well, also I gave some statistics, didn't I? If you guys remember, uh, I asked the question, how many uh, times... Or what do you think is the most essential part of Jesus' teaching, right? And most people said love. Now, I want to clarify, love is crucial. Like, even, even when Jesus talks about it, he says, this is the greatest commandment. Okay. But what's surprising is, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, excluding John, he only talks about love twice. He talks about it when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbors yourself, and love your enemies. So if you just look at, like, the book of Matthew, for instance, that would be three, right? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor yourself, love your enemy. So it just so happens he mentions it twice in the same teaching, but it's two different times. Just the book of Matthew, he mentions the phrase kingdom of God 49 times, and if you count just the word kingdom, it's about double that. And so proportionately, you can see the kingdom of God is absolutely crucial to understanding Jesus of Nazareth. And, and what he talks about, almost all of his parables about the kingdom of God, uh, it's always on his lips, right? And so we made that point last time that it's really important. Now, the, the thing that's unfortunate is that um, most of us don't think much about the kingdom of God, in the West at least, and it's not talked about much in church. In fact, quite a few of you last week never even heard a sermon on the kingdom of God when I asked last week. That shows that there must be something, like, why is that the case, right? If Jesus talks about it so much, why is it we don't hear too much about it, right? Um, 
I think that there's a lot, a lot of it has to do with misunderstanding what the kingdom of God is. Okay, we tend to spiritualize it. We tend just to, what is he talking about? We don't really understand. We live in a society that's democratic. Um, and so we don't really understand the concept of kingdom. And so because of the misunderstanding, I think a lot of times we're just like, hey, whatever that means. And we don't really pay much attention to it. So what I want to do is really just hit on what is the kingdom of God. So we have that foundational understanding. So we can have it. Now, what I want to say is this. Love is absolutely crucial. All this stuff that we talk about is absolutely crucial. But the point is, the kingdom, it all has to be understood within the framework of the kingdom of God is at hand. Does that make sense? And so in order to understand love and forgiveness and everything, we have to understand what does it mean that the kingdom of God is at hand? Because it's in that framework and context that we're supposed to understand all these other things. Now, just because Jesus only mentions love two different times doesn't, doesn't negate its importance. You know how many times he mentions born again in the whole Bible? Do you know how many times the Bible says born again? Exactly. Twice, maybe three, depending on your translation. Now, how many of you know being born again is absolutely important? Right? And so just because it's mentioned a couple, right, not very many times, doesn't negate the fact it's absolutely important to our faith. But if Jesus is shouting the kingdom of God is at hand, and that's the thing he talks about the most, how many of you know it's important? Of course it's important that we need to uh, talk about this. So I'm, ju I'm just going to use Mark's summary here, because like I said, every, and we talked about it last week, so... Uh, for those of you here, I'm just reminding you, from Mar this is Mark's summary of Jesus' teaching. Okay, so Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So, what does this mean? If you think about it, everything in this little saying has to do with the kingdom of God. He says, the time is fulfilled. What time? The time of the kingdom of God. Repent and believe the good news. What good news? The good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? He's talking, everything in this teaching that summarizes the entirety of Jesus' teaching and his ministry has to do with the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, in, in capsule format. So it's not like Jesus just went around and repeating this over and over and over, like this one sentence. No, he's, what Mark's saying is if you take the entirety and whole of his message and teaching and ministry and put it in like a sentence form, this would be it. It all had to do with the kingdom of God. Now, what I want to, so what is the kingdom of God? What I want to say, and I talked about this last time, but I want to hammer it a little bit more today because this is, I think, one of the reasons we misunderstand what the kingdom of God is and why we just kind of don't really talk about it because we don't, uh, we, there's a lot of misunderstanding of what it is. What is it? I'm going to talk about reign versus realm. Okay? We tend to think of a kingdom as a realm, a geographical location. Okay, or a place, or a spatial term. Like the Netherlands is a kingdom, right? That's, that's how we think. It's a place. It's a geographical location. However, the kingdom of God is not a place. When it's not a place, okay, that we're going, it doesn't even belong essentially to the category of space at all. That's where we can go wrong. What am I talking about? When, he's, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about a time. 
a time of God's rule and reign. So you see this from Mark's summary. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? So the kingdom has to do with the category of time, and therefore it has to do with reign or realm. Not, or reign or rule, rather. Not realm. Not a place. It's a time when God rules. Does that make sense? So the translation of the Greek actually should be translated the time of God's rule. That's how it could accurately be translated. Now, you might be wondering what I'm talking about. It's a function of how we use the word kingdom in English. It's the same as Greek and Hebrew. There can be two different meanings. And I'm going to give you this example to hopefully clarify what I'm talking about. During the kingdom of George III, the American colonies revolted against the kingdom of England. Okay, just to show you the distinction. You can substitute kingdom in the first part with reign. Does that make sense? During the reign of George III, but it's perfectly good English to say during the kingdom of George III, right? So there's an England before and after George III, but there's only one period of time when George III was reigning. Does this make sense? It's that part, it's that meaning of kingdom that Jesus is talking about. That's the essential meaning of kingdom of God, the time of God's rule, not a location. So, it's the time, the kingdom of God is the time when God exercises his sovereignty and rules supremely over his creation and over all the affairs of mankind. It's a time of God's rule. So, it's, we talked about this last week, it's primarily a time of the end when God steps on the scene and ushers in his rule and reign. Okay? Now, just to remind us, and for those of you who weren't here, we're, this is an important term, especially when we're talking about the kingdom of God. Eschatology. <laughs> so we're going to be using it a lot, so I'm going to remind us what it means. The kingdom of God is essentially an eschatological term. Eschatology just simply means having to do with the time at the end. So whenever you hear anyone talking about the book of Revelation or the end times, that's eschatology. Okay, the word eschaton simply means the end. Okay? So everything in the Bible is looking forward to the end. And the kingdom of God is that word is actually meaning the end. And we're going to talk about that more today. So, also I want to mention this, just to refresh your memory, that it belongs to the category of a time that's being fulfilled. So when are you, whenever you have the language fulfillment, it belongs to the category of promise and fulfillment. In other words, there was a promise somewhere in the Bible that's now being fulfilled now, right? So the time is fulfilled. That means there must be a promise somewhere. That's being fulfilled, okay? Now, that also means that it has to, the kingdom of God has in some ways related to Jewish end-time expectations and has to be understood in terms of Jewish messianic hopes. And that's what we started talking about last week. We went back, if you remember, to the Old Testament to understand, okay, where is this idea even coming from, this promise that's being fulfilled now? Because in all honesty, in the, the kingdom of God, is you don't see that much actually at all in the Old Testament, that term. Yet when John the Baptist and Jesus comes on the scene, everyone knew what they're talking about. Everybody had that framework. So they weren't, when they were like, hey, the kingdom of God's at hand, people weren't like, what are you, what are you talking about? What's the kingdom of God? They're like, oh my goodness, the kingdom of God's at hand. I have to get right with God. 
right? Does that make sense? So what we started doing last week is going through the Old Testament to get a framework and understanding, okay, where did this idea of the kingdom of God come from? Then we ended right at the intertestamental period, meaning right, the last book of the Bible is Malachi, or the Old Testament is Malachi. Then there was about 430 years between Malachi and John the Baptist. So what happened in that 430 years is crucial for understanding the kingdom of God. That's where all this language comes from. And, that, and it was that framework that actually uh, really influenced the majority of people. So everybody knew what they were talking about. So today I want to go in that direction. But to get there, I want to just remind us what we talked about last week. So I'm going to try and just quickly go over a bit what we talked about last week. If you weren't here, I'm going to kind of go fast. Uh, you can get the sermon from last week from Facebook or from our Joyful Tidings or just email us at ottawa.catchthefire.com. We'll email it to you if you want to hear more details about what I'm going to refresh our memory about today. Okay, so I basically said all of this. It has to do with the Jewish people. They're looking for Messiah to come at the end of history and, a brand, and usher in a brand new age. All right. So back to the Old Testament to understand the nature of this messianic hope. We started last, oh, before I get there, the Old Testament comes in a way that's always looking forward, right? It has a forward look to it, always. Always looking forward to the latter days, to the time of the end, to the day of the Lord, okay? The Old Covenant's always looking forward to this promised New Covenant, which is going to take place in what they call the latter days. Now, the latter days just simply means days that are beyond our days. Some translations say the last days, uh, it's better probably latter days. That's a better word because it doesn't mean the last days. It didn't at that point. It means days that are beyond our days. So they're assuming that something's going to happen within history, and that's important because the Old Covenant, the Old Testament understanding was that this is going to happen within history, and that's going to change in the intertestamental period. So we started talking about David, King David. And the reason we there, started there is because David became essentially the uh, ideal king, right? He was a man after God's own heart. He, he ruled during the golden age of Israel. And after him, it just went downhill, right? You just read the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles. King after king after king after king just, just messed up royally, got into idolatry, got into immorality, and it was bad, Right, And so, and in fact, what's interesting, if you read the book of Kings, it, it always compares each king to David, doesn't it? It wasn't, this king wasn't like their father David. They did this, this, and this wrong. And then every so often, like Josiah comes around, there's this really good king, and it's like they were like their father David, always comparing it to David. But because of this decline in Israel's history, there developed this future hope. Okay? That God would do the David thing again sometime in the history because they were promised a lot more than they were experiencing after David. Right? Every king afterwards was, like I said, in terrible condition. Israel was in uh, civil war for centuries, the north and south. If you read the book of Kings, you know. They separated. They're always at war with each other. It's terrible. So then there's this developed this God should restore the fortunes of David again someday, and he will. At some point in history. So that hope took shape in terms of David and his rule. So in other words, the Davidic kingdom of the past was now projected to the future and idealized. In other words, David became the ideal, ideal king and his reign became the ideal time. 
right? And so it's like David's going to, or God's going to restore a Davidic king sometime again in the future, and it's going to be awesome, and he's going to rule in righteousness, and it's going to be amazing. Okay, so then the prophets, and I have here the day of the Lord. The prophets, if you look, they took this future hope, and they gave it a word, and the word was the day of the Lord. So they took this future hope that God would restore the Davidic kingdom again, and they called it the day of the Lord, right? You guys probably recognize that language, the day of the Lord. It's a time in the future when God would have his day, and it exercises rule over the earth. And the, the characteristics that um, describe the day of the Lord more than anything else is righteousness and justice, Okay, so God is going to have his day. He's going to restore righteousness and justice in the earth. Now, what happened is if you look at the prophets, the day of the Lord was first of all going to be a day of judgment. That is the underlying motif of the prophets, period. 95% of the prophetic oracles are judgment oracles. That's why if you've ever tried, how many of you have read Jeremiah? It's kind of challenging, isn't it? And that's why. Because it's judgment, 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 judgment. We talked about last week the three sins. The three great sins of Israel were what? Idolatry, oppression of the poor, and sexual immorality. So if you look at those are the three predominant sins. Now, to be sure, the judgment was for the surrounding nations. But more than that, it was a judgment on Israel. Because they were God's people, but they weren't acting like God's people, and they weren't doing his will. Okay? So, now, with that being said, the day of the Lord was also a day of salvation and restoration after the judgment. So, you just look at Jeremiah 29, right? I know the thoughts I have for you, thoughts to, you know, what does it prosper you and give you hope in a future. That's in the myth, judgment, 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 judgment. Finally, right? (laughs) Chapter 29, he says this awesome thing. The point is, there is going to be restoration and salvation someday, after the judgment comes. Now, in Jeremiah also, he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And for the Jewish people, that meant the end, right? That meant that's the end. And so after that happens, there's going to be a day of salvation and restoration. Jeremiah, who stands at the end of this classical prophetic vision, this is before the judgment, He proclaims to the people, he's the first one to call it a new covenant. That God's going to make a new covenant with the remnant of people who kept his law. Talks about putting his law in our hearts, that sort of thing. Okay. Now, I will say this as well. God's day is going to be characterized as a reign. I already said that. Righteousness and justice. He was justice. He was going to overturn the effects of the fall. The whole creation would feel the effects of it. We know these passages. The lion and the lamb are going to lay down together, right? People are going to be at peace with each other. They're going to worship Yahweh together. It's going to be awesome. So all the prophets are giving this picture of what it's going to be like, and it's going to be amazing. God's going to overturn all this terrible stuff that's happening, and and it's going to be his rule and reign of righteousness. He was going to rule supreme, and his will alone would be done. Okay. Now, the day of judgment came. All of these things that Jeremiah was prophesying about actually came. The destruction of Jerusalem and Israel, and then they went into exile, right? 
There was a time between exile and restoration. Now, Trisha made the good point last week. We're not talking about the fullness of the fulfillment of the judgment that you see, for instance, in the book of Revelation was fulfilled. I'm talking about the judgment of Israel that was in Jeremiah, for instance. Does that make sense? So we're talking about that when Jeremiah was saying for 70 years and all that, that happened. Okay, so then they went into exile, into Babylonian captivity. So in the time between exile and restoration for about 70 years, there is this re-expression of the prophetic hope that there would be a day of the Lord. Okay, so there's still this expectation that God will be doing something within the framework of history called the latter days. Now, Ezekiel, this is, when you read the book of Ezekiel, he's prophesying during this time of exile. Okay, he picked up this Jeremiah motif of the new covenant. You read, in Eze- and we read these scriptures last week, if you remember. Ezekiel 36, he talks about the new covenant again. But he, what he does now, he adds the element of spirit to it. He says, I will take out your stony heart, give you a heart of flesh, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to obey my will. Obey my laws and decrees. Okay, so then he, so the whole point is, is Ezekiel now... The Holy Spirit is the key to the New Covenant, and we'll get back to that later, but you see that all throughout the New Testament. It's all about the Holy Spirit coming. Okay. Yes. Now, oh, also, and and you guys remember the Valley of Dry Bones we talked about last week, and the, the whole point is resurrection, and the Lord says, I will gather you from all the nations where you're in exile and get you back to your land and raise you by my spirit. Okay, now, this is the last part we talked about last week, the restoration and the great disappointment. So, and again, uh, excuse me, I'm going fast, just because we talked about this last week. I just want to get to the place where we ended last week. So, after 70 years in captivity, they were restored to the land. Okay, so you read the book of uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, all of that is about this restoration. Now, it was in that restoration that a great number of them began thinking, okay, we experienced the judgment of the day of the Lord. Now's the time of the promised salvation and restoration. So they were expecting going back and rebuilding the temple and all that. This is going to be the fulfillment of all those amazing prophetic words that they read in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they were excited. Right? This is the time when the lion and the lamb are going to lay down together, and God's going to restore his temple, and it's going to be amazing. So, that, so they looked at that as the fulfillment of God's hope of his salvation and this time of justice and righteousness. Now, unfortunately, that restoration, instead of being the great day of the Lord, is salvation. It turned out to be one of the greatest disappointments in Israel's history. Okay, this became one of the cataclysmic disappointments in Israel. Because they were expecting all of these amazing promises that we still talk about from Isaiah and stuff to happen when they went back to Jerusalem. But instead of, right, the flowers blooming in the desert and it being a time of righteousness, sin prevailed, right? Instead of all the nations flocking to Jerusalem, hardly any of the Jews even came back. 
right? Their own families didn't even come back. And not only that, the second temple was a far cry from that of Solomon's and that in Ezekiel's vision. And I showed you these scriptures last week, didn't I? The people who saw the former temple were weeping when they saw the foundation of the new one. And in, in, in Haggai, he says, you saw the glory of the former temple. Isn't this one nothing in comparison? Like, and people were crying, the ones who saw, because it was so much inf- more inferior than the, so they were super disappointed. They're like, this is not at all what we are expecting, okay? Right? They were expecting these amazing things, and, the, and it was terrible for them. So in the process, great disappointment and gloom settled into Israel. This is a time of uh, gloom. And if you read the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Bible, it elaborates in some detail the enormity of despair that they finally settled in during this period. This is around, depending who you ask, we'll just say around 430 B.C., the last book of the Bible. Then what happens, right? In, in our Bible, there's no more books until John the Baptist comes on the scene. So what happened for those 430 years? Guarantee you those were not uninteresting years. A lot of stuff happened in those years. And those are the years we're going to emphasize and talk about more today because of what happened there was so critical for our understanding of the kingdom of God. So we call that time period, the time after Malachi and before Matthew, Matthew essentially, before John the Baptist, the intertestamental period. Okay, so about over 400 years, there is this period of time in Israel's history that if you read the Bible, you don't know much about because there's no books from that time in our Bible. So that time period became known as the time of the quenched spirit. Okay, and that becomes important. So skip another couple hundred years. This is a time when Israel is no longer an independent state. Okay, but simply become a pawn between warring states. Went from another to another to another, and all the time not having independent existence. If you know history, they were in captivity to the Persian Empire. Then Alexander the Great came, took over, and then his three generals took over, and then two of those kingdoms were fighting over Israel, and they, were, they, didn't, they weren't independent anymore, right? So this is a tough time for Israel. Sin and injustice continued, right, during this time. And all the time, they're remembering what the Old Testament prophets told them about their own destiny, right? They had this in their mind. They're like, look at all these promises in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel about this amazing day of the Lord, right? So they they remember those promises, but they weren't experiencing it at all, okay? So at the end of the, now, uh, at the end of the prophetic period, before this intertestamental period, They began to look for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to come in fullness, but they looked for that to come at the end of time. Okay, this is going to become important to understanding the New Testament. So, right, they're looking for, and in the process, there happened in Israel the concept of this time of the quenched Spirit. They thought the Holy Spirit left the land. (laughs) That reminds me of Bono's, uh, uh, this is an aside, his quote, Religion's what you get when the spirit leaves the building. <laughs> That's what Israel got when the spirit left the land. The time, what they called it, the quenched spirit. There's now, as a result, there was no prophetic voice in the land at that time. Okay? Because they believed that the spirit's been quenched and he's no longer speaking. 
And that becomes important. And that's why we have no books in the Bible from that period of time, because they didn't believe God spoke anymore, because it became the time of the quenched spirit. Now, just to give you a grid for this, everyone came to believe that the prophets spoke by the Holy Spirit. So you just look at 2 Peter 1, 2, or 1, 21. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you, ha- so in other words, no Holy Spirit equals no prophecy. Does that make sense? That's why they're like, hey, the Holy Spirit's not here. No, no more prophets during this time. Now, Zechariah actually talks about this. So they're basing it off this scripture a little bit. Okay, so this is Zechariah 13, 2 to uh, uh, 3. And they believe they lived in this time period. On that day, I'll remove both prophets and the spirit of infirmity from the, impurity from the land. Now get this. And if anyone still prophesies during this time... Their, their father and their mother, to whom they were born, will say to them, you must die because you have told lies in the Lord's name. Then their own parents will stab the one who prophesies. <laughs> so they thought they were living this time. So, yeah, no one's going to prophesy, right? Because if they do, then this is what has to happen. They're going to die. Okay, so th- that's the period of time they thought they were living in. Now, here's some literature from that time period, from the intertestamental time period. How many of you heard the book of Maccabees? Okay, if you read the Catholic Bible, they still have some of these documents in there. Should I go into this? I'll just say something quick. During that time, how many of you heard this Septuagint? Okay, that's a really important uh, document, because what happened is during this intertestamental period, they translated the Bible from Hebrew to Greek, okay? And they call it the Septuagint because in Latin that means 70, and the, the tradition has it that 72 elders wrote it in 70 days, I think. doesn't matter other than to say the Latin translation that Jerome did of the Bible that the Catholics still use, used the Septuagint, and it's also important because Paul the Apostle used the Septuagint. So if you, have you ever read, like, for instance, you're reading the Bible and there's a quote Paul uses and you read the Hebrew and it doesn't match up completely? Often, or sometimes at least, it's because he's actually using a different translation of the Bible. He's using the Greek version of the original because he was a dice. Okay. Does that make sense? Now, what happened is during that time, some of the documents that were written during that time got included with the Septuagint. And so because the Catholic Church used that as to translate into Latin, those books made the Catholic, but they weren't Hebrew documents. Our Bible only has the Hebrew documents. Does that make sense? Okay, thank you. So, Maccabees, <laughs> talking about the time of the quenched spirit. Look, look at some of this stuff. Great distress in Israel came and as uh, had not been since the time that prophets ceased to appear among them. Right? So even during this time, they're saying the prophets ceased. In the apocalypse of Baruch, he says the prophets had lain down to sleep. Josephus, the famous historian that you hear a lot about from that era, says from Artaxerxes to our own time, the complete history has been written but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. You see that? So even literature during this time is saying the prophets ceased and that, okay. So, And this is important. During this time arose what we call the apocalyptists. The apocalyptists, sorry. 
this was a group of writers. Oh, and I should say this, is into this kind of picture, right? No Holy Spirit, no prophets, despair, right? Gloom on Israel. This, during this intertestamental period that this group of writers came along, along known as the Apocalyptists. Now, it's among the Apocalyptists that this hope for the future is kept alive. Okay, that's why it's important. These writers that arose during this time kept this day of the Lord thing going. But the reason it's important is because there were some shifts that happened in their understanding of the day of the Lord that explains where the people, the Jewish people were at the time when Jesus came. Okay, so it's important to understand the language and the ideas that came from this period because that lays a framework that John the Baptist, for instance, understood. So... With the use of new language and fantastic imagery, they transformed the day of the Lord into a totally eschatological event. Now, when I say fantastic imagery, how many of you read the book of Revelation? Okay, that is an apocalyptic literature. Now, that's a genuine one. Okay, John wrote it. But, but that's the, kind, the genre I'm talking about. So if, how many of you read like the book of Enoch? Yeah, it's similar, right? Imagery, when I say fantastic, I mean that literally. Like... Revelation, right? We know what a beast is. We know what heads are, but a beast with seven heads, you know, like really, okay. So that's the nature of this kind of literature that arose during that time. Now, since there was no spirit in the land, they couldn't write prophetically in their own names. And this is why. So what they did is they went and back and took names of people from antiquity who did have this spirit and wrote under their names, Right? so that they could speak this hope to Israel. Does that make sense? Because, right, if there's no prophets in the land and you're not supposed to prophesy or else you'll be killed, what, what choice do you have other than to take the name of somebody like Enoch or Moses or Adam and Eve? You have all of these apocalyptic documents that are under other people's names. If you ever ask the question why, this is why. Because it's the, during the time of the quenched spirit when no prophets are speaking, so they had no choice other than to write in someone else's name. Not to say... And Tricia said this last time, and I should make it clear that those are necessarily inspired documents. And there's a reason they didn't make our Bible, right? So take it with a grain of salt. A lot of it, I think, what, uh, in Enoch, for instance, some of it was inspired. I think some of it wasn't. So you have to really, really pray if you're going to attempt to read these documents, whether they're from the Lord or not. Okay, so just take that as it is. So that, that's called pseudepigraphy. So there's a lot of that that arose like 200 BC. And this, this apocalyptic literature actually influenced early Christianity till about 200 AD. Okay, so... Oh, am I... Oh. <laughs> You're in Bible school today. Okay. So... The apocalyptists still had this hope, and this is important, they still had this prophetic hope that God will finally act in the future on their behalf. Now, understanding this is going to help understand, like I said, Jesus, but also the New Testament, because Paul uses this language as well from this time period. So, and the ideas also. Now, because they've been down, we talked about this, Israel was in despair and gloom for so long they gave up on God doing anything within history. Remember I emphasized that? It was always about the latter days. The idea is God's going to do something in history. They gave up on that completely. Instead, what they looked for is for God to totally end history. For God to come on the scene in a huge cataclysmic boom end this demonic satanic age, which is what they thought it was, and usher in a brand new age. 
And last week we talked about how the New Age movement actually stole that term from us, the Bible. The eon, it's called, the New Age. That was the idea that God would come on the scene, end history, from outside of history, and do something brand new. Now, from that, they got, that period came the language, and this is important, this age and the age to come. How many of you can think of scriptures where you hear that? Jesus used it. You remember? Those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Paul the Apostle talks about it a lot, too. And that's where they were influenced from this time period where this idea and this language came, this age and the age to come. came from the apocalyptic literature. Now, the one constant thing in all of these documents from this period is the motif that this age is an evil age. And by the way, when we get to this someday in the future... How many of you know, you remember, like, for instance, when Paul talks about the flesh versus the spirit? Honestly, all of that is to be understood by this. When Paul talks about flesh, he's actually referring to this age, which Satan rules, and the spirit is the age of the spirit to come. And we're to live from that age. Okay, so we'll get to that someday, but I'm just sowing seeds now so you know how important this is. Even Paul's understanding and the language he uses is totally influenced by this. So they're looking for this ultimate stepping in of God into history and bringing it to a smashing conclusion, kind of like the book of Revelation, right? It's like, bam, after the seven bowls, you know, and it's just like, oh, awesome. Then the banquet of the lamb, and it's going to be great. Okay, just to show you, uh, uh, here it is. They called it this age is Satan's age, okay? So we're living in this age, then there's going to be this end Right? And then the age to come, which is called the kingdom of God. Okay? That's this language the kingdom of God develops from this idea. So if you can't read that, I realize it's small. I just, this is just to give you an idea. So this age, everything's upside down. Okay? The good guys are down. Bad guys are up. Sin is everywhere. Injustice prevails. Rebellion's found in the whole of human society. People aren't serving God. They're idolaters. And especially, and this becomes important with Jesus' ministry, they saw demon possession and sickness as evidence this is Satan's age. That's why Jesus tackles those two things when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay. And this isn't a time of righteousness and justice. So all of this and more was evidence to them that we're living in Satan's age. Okay. And now what they're looking for is God to bring a cataclysmic end to this present age and usher in this new age. And I'm repeating myself for reasons so that we, you know, repetition helps with this stuff. So the coming age is going to be the time in which God is going to rule. Okay, we're talking about the kingdom of God. Therefore, it's in this kind of understanding that the language of the kingdom of God arises. Remember what we talked about previously, talking about God's rule and reign, a time, not a place, a time, okay? So it was during this apocalyptic period that this language, the kingdom of God, arose, and you can see, like I said, it influenced the majority of people, apparently, and that's why when John the Baptist came and Jesus came saying, the time is at hand, the kingdom of God is here, everyone knew what they were talking about because of these writers, ideas. Okay, so it belongs to this understanding that Satan's age is going to be totally overtaken 
by God's rule, okay? So he's going to totally overtake Satan. And you see that in the book of Revelation, right? Satan's time is limited. God's going to overcome, and this is going to be awesome. So the age to come, right? The end, the age to come. Like I already said, the language of the kingdom of God developed from this idea. God alone will be king over all the earth when this happens. Satan's going to be brought to an end. Through the ultimate Davidic king, God will rule, Messiah. And the language of Messiah was adopted and developed during this time period. Now, I I have to say this, and I'm kind of sowing seeds with what I'm about to say today, because we'll talk about this some other day, but this is important, talking about the intertestamental period. The coming age became known as the age of the Spirit. Okay? Let's just talk about that a little bit. Now, because that was the time of the quenched spirit, one of the things that they had in this expectation was they're looking for the age to come as an age of the spirit. So the coming of the spirit was the one thing that was going to mark the division of the ages. And this is going to make the New Testament make a whole lot more sense why the Holy Spirit's so important. That was the evidence of the kingdom of God, that the Spirit's coming back in fullness, okay? So because of this, and I'm going to show you this prophecy in a minute, the prophecy of Joel was now looked upon as a totally eschatological event. That's something that was going to happen at the end of history. Sorry, it wasn't going to happen within history. It was going to happen at the end of history. The Holy Spirit was going to come in the fullness, and that was going to be the dividing mark of the age to come. So that at the final end time, there is going to be the fulfillment of the Joel prophecy. Okay, so I just have a couple scriptures from the Joel prophecy. You guys will recognize this. Joel 2, 28 to 32. And afterwards, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. So your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days. The point of this is that everyone's going to be a prophet in the age to come. Everyone, right, the whole pecking order of society is mentioned here. From old men to female slaves, which is the real meaning of that word servant. In that time, they were the lowest in society, okay? So he's, he's just saying, in those days, there's not going to be a prophet here or there, or anointed priest here, and anointed king there. Everybody's going to be a prophet because the Spirit's going to come and be poured out on everybody. So the age to come, uh, I already said that, is going to be the kingdom of God and was going to be evidenced above everything else by the Spirit. So that's why that Joel prophecy and others become so important for their understanding of the end times. Now, this idea here is absolutely crucial for understanding Paul the Apostle especially, but the whole New Testament. Like, for sure, like for Luke, for example. We'll talk about that later. But I want to say this now while we're on it. How many of you recognize the prophecy of Joel from the day of Pentecost? Okay, so the day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes, wind, fire, wine. They're all looking drunk to people. And then Peter explains, no, they're not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, the one we just read, right? And then he quotes it. 
In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit on those days, and they'll prophesy. Why is this important? Now, I know this is a lot of text, but it's because I wanted to make this point, and then you can read it later if you want. The outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost upon the church is what marked the church's understanding forever that they'd entered into the eschatological age. That's why it was so significant when Peter saw this and said, that is, this is the fulfillment of that Joel prophecy that we've been waiting for. That's the demarcation that the age to come has come. And if you read the New Testament, they lived in this understanding that, that the eschatological age, the hope we've been waiting for, has come in Jesus in the outpouring of the Spirit. Okay, because this gift of the Spirit belongs to the eschatological age, and it, the Spirit's now poured out upon all flesh, fulfilling that prophecy, they understood themselves to be living in the time in which the end has already made its appearance. And we're going to be talking about all about this in the coming weeks. Because getting this understanding of what the New Testament apostles and writers and with Jesus, how they understood what, what how, the time we're living in is crucial for understanding the New Testament, for understanding, for instance, Christian ethics, for understanding how we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to do. All of this is crucial for understanding that. And that's why I'm saying it now. Okay, now I'm going to recap slightly because I know this is a lot. Just give a brief summary Talk about John the Baptist for a minute, and we'll finish. So just to recap, all the way through the Old Testament, and especially in the prophets, the hope for the future is still a hope within history, the latter days. They're looking for God to step on the scene and restore the fortunes of David in a historical sense. God is going to put a new David on the throne, and that David's going to rule in righteousness. Okay, that's the Old Testament understanding. Then after Malachi, there's this intertestamental period. And during that period, the major adjustments to their understanding took place with, and, right, in which Jesus and the New Testament people are heirs of these ideas, including the kingdom of God. So many people, remember, gave up on God doing something within history, within the latter days, to God bringing their hope to a fulfillment at the end of history. And that's to bring an end to history and usher in an entire new era, God's day. Therefore, the great day of the Lord became a thoroughly eschatological concept. And you can see why that, that term is important, why I defined it earlier. The result of all of these ideas is this two-age worldview from the apocalyptic literature. They divided time in two ages. This age, right? Remember, Satan's age is evil, oppression, demonic, no spirit. And the age to come, which is the kingdom of God. The coming age would be ushered in with a supernatural intervention, usually in this literature accompanied by a powerful Messiah who would come in triumph, restore the nation to its former glory, Bring the spirit and deliver the oppressed. The time of God's rule, the kingdom of God, it came to be called. Does that make sense? So, after the Maccabean period, about 166 to 165 BC, this apocalyptic thing really intensified. Now, if you don't know, around that time, one of the successors of Alexander the Great had Israel, right? They weren't independent, and they 
put a statue of Zeus in the temple and sacrificed a pig. Now, of course, this, this was a catalyst to them revolting. Maccabee, I forget his first name, was a priest who started this revolt, and then Israel actually ended up becoming independent until the Romans came along. But they became kind of corrupt too eventually, so unfortunately. But the point is, around that time, this apocalyptic thing really intensified. Okay, there's this tremendous fervor and hope and expectation right before the time of the New Testament that God would finally step on the scene and do things. So in other words, right around the time John the Baptist came, this was at fever pitch. They're like, the day of the Lord's going to be any minute now. Okay, so, so all of Israel's just an expectancy of the day of the Lord to come. And it was in this fervor that one day John the Baptist came proclaiming the eschatological nearness of God's time. Okay, in this whole context. So I'm just going to, for a minute, talk about John the Baptist and we'll finish. So enter John the Baptist, right? Into this kind of messianic expectation that we have to understand him. Because, right, and he raised this expectation to fever pitch, right? He comes, what's the first thing Matthew says about it? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Right? And that's his message. Repent for this day of the Lord, this eschatological time when God's going to come, his reign of righteousness is coming, is right around the corner. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? And if you're not, you got to repent because it's any day now. Okay? So if you read the three synoptic gospels, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, they set John the Baptist's whole entire ministry in the context of fulfillment of Isaiah and Malachi, for example, right? They quote that one coming out of the wilderness, we, right? Especially if you look at Luke 3, 1 through 18. His message is totally eschatological. So verses 4 to 6, they cite from Isaiah 43 to 5, prepare the way of the Lord, right? The Messiah is right around the corner. He's, he's here, in fact. He's in our midst. You got to get right with God because the day of the Lord's any minute. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Remember, they thought the day of the Lord is going to be, first of all, judgment and in salvation. So John the Baptist was preaching judgment for a reason, right? You look at his message, it's all judgment. The axe is already at the root of the trees. It's right around the corner. Now, they thought John the Baptist, they were in such expectation. They're like, is he the one? You remember that? They're like, is this the one? John the Baptist is like, no, no. I'm not the one. I'm just baptizing you in water. The one who's coming is going to baptize you in what? The Holy Spirit and fire. Remember, the significance of that is what? That the Holy Spirit is going to be the demarcation of this age, the new, the usher, that's ushering in the age to come. But also, the Messiah was going to be known as the ultimate man of the Spirit. You look at it, Isaiah 11. 1 to 3, Isaiah 42, 1, Isaiah 61. All of them were talking about that the Messiah is anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. And all these things are going to happen. The great reversal, right, where the, he's going to deliver the oppressed and those who are in captive and set them free. All of it was in the context of the Messiah being the ultimate man of the Spirit. So his message, talking about John the Baptist, was essentially prophetic, and I'm paraphrasing here, we're at the brink. Get ready for the coming age that God's about to usher in. Repent, 
Prepare yourselves in righteousness by submitting to baptism for the coming kingdom of righteousness is at hand. So from them submitting to his baptism, they're essentially saying, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm sinful. I'm not ready for this coming age of the kingdom where God's going to rule in righteousness. So I'm going to repent and through baptism identify with your message that, no, I need to get right with God because it's right around the corner. Does that make sense? So all of this language that he's using is intended to prepare them for the great final eschatological event. And we know this. Even now one stands in your midst, unknown to us, mightier than I. He shall usher in the coming age, baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, bringing judgment and salvation, is what that language means. Then enter in Jesus of Nazareth. And with Jesus... This gets a whole lot more interesting. So we're going to end there. And then whenever I speak next, we're going to talk all about Jesus. Because what's his message? We talked about this when he comes on the scene. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And we, we have to understand Jesus, what he said I'm going to say this. He talked about the kingdom as already being fulfilled, but not yet being fulfilled. Already, not yet. As an already, this is already happening. Like, for instance, in Matthew 12, when he says, if by the spirit of God, I cast out demons, right? Then what? The kingdom of God has come upon you, meaning it's here right now. And this is evidence of it. But he also says, for instance, in Matthew 24, when the, when the Messiah comes in the clouds with all of his angels, meaning it's going to be a future thing too. Already, not yet. And that's where I think I said how our understanding of kingdom, how that, how that results in misunderstanding, and uh, for good reason, because we think of it as geography when it has to do with rain. In the same way, because Jesus' message was ambiguous, that it's already not yet, People get confused, but we're going to talk all about that and clarify what that means. I'm just letting you know now and giving you a framework to think about this so that we can understand what, what Jesus meant and intended and the, what, what it means that we're living in this age right now, in between the ages. So I'll just leave it at that and end there. So let's pray. <laughs> that was an awkward ending. Sorry about that. Father, we, we just thank you for the kingdom of God. We thank you so much for who you are and just that the kingdom of God has come. Lord, we thank you so much that the spirit has been poured out and that as a result, we're living in this time as your eschatological people, bringing the age to come into this age and letting people know what it means to be people of the age to come. Father, I just ask that you help us to understand the kingdom of God, that you help us understand uh, the framework in which the New Testament is to be understood in the coming weeks, and that you just give us fresh revelation of what it means to be proclaimers as disciples of your kingdom of God. And so, Lord, we just ask in the coming weeks that you help us to release the kingdom of God wherever we go, that you help us to usher in the reality of your kingdom by your spirit 
so that people will know that you are real and that people will experience your goodness and your love and your mercy while it's the day of your favor and the time of your salvation. So, Father, I just thank you so much for who you are and all you're doing in our lives, and I just ask that you continue to bless us with more revelation of who you are and how good you are in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So...